The second Bible reading is taken from uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. Um, You can find it in uh, some of the Pew Bibles on page 1026. (coughs) Sorry. Um, So verse 24. Then Jesus to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks. Well, today we're beginning a new series on the heartbeat of our church and we'll be reflecting on the five values that we shared before because we want to make sure that as a church our heart beats in sync with the heartbeat of God. We want to make sure that as a church what God loves, we love. What God desires, we desire. What God considers important, we also consider important. So we'll be reflecting on this and today it's the first one, God-centered lives. God-centered lives. But let's uh, pray. Once again, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to live God-centered lives, lives that are focused on you and not on ourselves. Help us to find in it fulfillment and life and joy and peace and comfort. And we pray that as we reflect on the call of Jesus towards discipleship, that you'll work in our hearts that will be shaped and changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever thought about what your legacy should be or what you like your legacy to be? Have you ever thought about that before? How would you like to be remembered? You see, we will be remembered, rightly, wrongly, whether we like it or not, but what difference would you like your life to have? I was just thinking about this the other day, in fact. Not that I think about this often. But just before school started, I was uh, giving my boys a haircut in our backyard. And so as I was cutting one of my son's hair, he couldn't get away. He's stuck there. And I thought, here's a good chance for a father-son talk. And so, I mean, he couldn't get away. Otherwise, it would look bad for him. And so the year was... a about to start and he's growing, he's starting a new year and I reflected with him, so you're starting school, you're a year older, you're a bigger kid now and then I asked him a question, I asked him, do you know what daddy wants for you this year? Do you know what my desire is for you this year? Now as a father, what could I have said? What wisdom could I instill in my son while I'm cutting his hair? Well, I could say what I hope is for you to this year be accepted more by all your friends, that you perhaps be more popular, that you might have a comfortable year this year, 
I mean, that sounds okay uh, as a father. Who wants their kids to not have an easy, good life? But I didn't say that. Though there's a part of me that really did hope that. And so I'm still cutting out. Or I could have said, well, what I hope for you this year is that you'll ace this year. You'll top your year. You beat all your friends. You get the best marks. You achieve. You succeed. You get the applause of everyone. You do your best and you be the best. I could have said that. I could have said, well, that will set you up well for life. You'll get a good course. You get into a good job. You'll have a comfortable life. But I didn't say that, though there was a part of me that was itching to say something like that. Instead, I said to him, still cutting his hair, I wanted to reflect with him on my deepest desire for my son. So I said to him, school starting tomorrow. Hopefully this year will be a good year for you this year. But what I want for you this year is not so that you will be the best in the year, not so that you will succeed. What's important for you this year is that I just want you to be godly. I want you to love God. I want you to serve God this year with your life. I want you to live a God-centered life. Now, I don't know how much he was listening. He's probably just concentrating, concerned, not moving, so that I don't muck up his hair. I, I thought I did a pretty good job with his hair anyway. But I was using that time to try to reflect even on my own heart. What is it that I really want for my children? But he did get me thinking, what are the impressions we leave to those we love? What is the impression that I will leave to my children one day? What is it that's important on my heart that I want reflected in his heart well shouldn't it be what we should all value that we would all live God-centered lives you see that's not just for some Christians it's in fact for all Christians that we all live God-centered lives lives centered on God and not on ourselves lives that will say I know God and God knows me Shouldn't that be the heartbeat of our church? And isn't that a legacy worth leaving? But you see, as we reflect on this value, uh, living a God-centered life, if we're really serious about this, it's in fact choosing a life that's not easy at all. It's not choosing a comfortable, relaxing, easy life. It's in fact choosing a costly life. And in the eyes of the world, if you say you're, you're living for God and not for yourself, in the eyes of the world, they'll, they'll look upon us and say, that's, that's just absurd. That's even folly. Why would you do that? Why would you not live for yourself? Everyone's living for themselves. I live for my happiness. I live for my ambition. I live for my pursuits. I live for my comfort, for my adventures, for my security. Why would I live for anyone else? But that is exactly what it means to be a Christian. Not just for some Christians, but all Christians. And this passage in particular will show us whether we are really serious about the things of God. Whether we're sincere and genuine in our faith in God. Whether we are living a God-centered life or whether we're just putting on a show. And so what does a God-centered life look like? Well, God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. 
It is shaped by the cross of Christ. And so what that already means is that it is choosing, not the easy path, not the path of least resistance, but it is choosing a costly path, a costly life. Not a comfortable, relaxing one, but a costly one. And so what that does already is that it begs the question whether some of us have been sold a different Christianity. One where you were promised, it'll be easy, smooth sailing, you'll have no worries. Well, well, that's the wrong one. Not the one Jesus called us to. And so let's have a look at this passage. Do, Do keep your Bible, it's only a few verses. Matthew 16. What does Jesus say here? A God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. Look at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, that is, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to know God, if you want to have a life with God, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to be able to call God your Father and heaven your home, What did Jesus say? Come after me. What do you do? You don't sit on your laurels. We don't sit on our rocking chair and just wait. Jesus invites us. Come after me. And then what does he say? Verse 24 again. If anyone would come after me, what must he do? He must deny himself. Now, isn't that strange? To be a disciple of Jesus, to live a God-centered life, is to deny yourself. To follow Jesus means we forget ourselves. And that's because Jesus is saying to us, you don't need to worry about your security. You don't need to worry about your own interests because I will take care of you. Just follow me. You don't need to worry about your own safety, your ultimate safety. Just follow me. I'll take care of you. You don't need to worry about your reputation. You don't need to worry about your possessions, your achievements, your successes. You don't need to worry about the approval of men and women. I'll take care of you. Just follow me. You don't even need to worry about your life. Just follow me. I'll take care of you. Let go and rest in me. And then what else do we read? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that is strange. That is so absurd in the eyes of this world. You see why it's so costly to be a Christian if you are a genuine one. You see, Jesus didn't say here, come after me, take up your suitcase, and we're going to go on a cruise. Didn't say that. He didn't say, follow after me, take up your diamond-encrusted golden necklace. And come after me. He didn't say that. He didn't say, take up all your creature comforts, your jacuzzi, your platinum credit cards, and come after me. He didn't say that. He said, take up your cross. In the ancient world, who were the people who had to take up their cross? It was those who were headed for the crucifixion. Those who were headed for their own death. And if that's your life, you've got no time to worry about creature comforts. It's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he once said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. 
And so what Jesus is saying is, if you are a Christian, if you want to live a life that is centered upon God, what Jesus wants is, he just doesn't want part of us. We just give him our right hand and not our left hand. We just give him our mind and not our hearts. We just give him our Sundays or only two hours on a Sunday and not the rest of the week. Or we just give him part of our savings account but not everything we own. See, Jesus doesn't just want part of us. He wants us. He wants you, all of us, all to be handed over to him as our king. And so that should be something we need to reflect on because that's what genuine discipleship looks like. That's what God-centered living looks like. Our whole being surrendered to Jesus, submitting to him. And so it should get us to reflect, even at this moment, if we are half-hearted when it comes to the things of God, in our love for him, just a little bit, not too much, in our service of him, just a little bit, not so much, in our sacrifice for him, in our sacrifice in our time, our money, our efforts, just a little bit so that it doesn't feel like it's a cost. If we're half-hearted, when he makes demands upon us and we say to him, not so much, come only so close but no closer. If we're half-hearted with the things of God, you see, we may be able to fool each other, but there's no fooling God. We might say that, God, you only deserve so much. But how can that be consistent when we look before us and there walking in front of us is Jesus himself who bore the cross? You see, we might be able to fool each other, but there's no fooling God. We are to deny ourselves and carry the cross. You see, C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. C.S. Lewis, he said, Christ says... Give me all. Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. A God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. There's no other way about it. And so we need to ask now, if that is what it means to be a genuine Christian, who in their right mind would choose that? Who in their right mind would consciously choose, I am not going to live for myself, I'm going to live for God? Why would we choose that? And why would we choose that for each other? It is because, though costly, it is the only life worth living. Look at verse 25 with me. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. It's a, it's a paradox, isn't it? If I want to save my life, I live for myself, I place all the securities in whatever I can hold on into this life to make me feel like I'm safe and I'm saved. I live for my career. I, I, I live making sure that I have a huge nest egg. It might help me feel secure, but it's a false security. Why is it all a false security, whatever we can cling on to in this world? 
Why is it a false security? Because I'll still be headed to the grave. But if I lose myself for Christ, that is, I place my life, my entire being in his hands, the one who has gone before me carrying his cross, the one who was nailed upon the cross for me, the one who bled for me, the one who died for me, the one who was raised to life again so that I might have life, there I find absolute security, absolute assurance and eternal life. It's why it's a life worth living. And so C.S. Lewis again, he, he continued that quote before. He said, Hand over your whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. We give our life to Christ, what do we get? We get him. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, even if we were to do the maths, our life is so important that it is far more costly to not follow Jesus. Jesus, he places a value on our soul, on your life and on my life. And Jesus says it's worth far more than everything in the world. You see, according to our government, they've got stats and they put a value on human life. This is for, for insurance purposes. And so there's a term called the value of statistical life. And so the government places the, the value of every Australian life. Do you know how much your life is worth according to the government? As an Australian, our life is valued at about $4.5 million each. That's how much our life is worth. If you are older, the value drops. If you're from New Zealand, it's even lower. <laughs> They're about 4.1 million. But what Jesus says here is that your soul, you only have one soul, your soul is worth far more than $4.5 million. Your soul is worth more than everything in the entire world. And so if you had to pick between your soul and owning everything in the world, all the luxury homes and yachts and cars, all the gold and diamond, all the fame and glamour, all the applause and approval of men and women, what should you choose? Well, it's meant to be quite clear. Don't choose the world. Choose your soul. And so look at verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Our soul, we get one, is worth more than the entire world. And so when I was sharing with my son, again, he probably wasn't listening too much, it was very easy just to wish and hope that this year he'll gain a bit more of this world. That his life, he might not gain the entire world, but at least gain a bit more of it so that he'll have a more comfortable life than I did. But we read here, what good is it if he forfeits his soul. I'd rather him live a life denying himself and following Christ, carrying his cross and following Christ. I'd rather him live a God-centered life because that's a life worth living. Because in the end, you see, it's not just a preference or a matter of opinion. This is a matter of life and death. 
This is a matter of heaven and hell. This is a matter of whether we meet God one day as judge or as father. And so look at our final verse, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. You see, there's a reward for those who live a wholehearted life centered on God, which at the very least would mean hearing those sweet words from our Saviour, good and faithful servant. But you see, these verses, only a few, but they represent the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to live a God-centered life, to be able to deny ourselves, carry our cross. It means that we can live with eternity in perspective. It means that if we have eternity in the bag already, we can live this life quite, quite fearlessly, quite radically. And when you hear stories of Christians who do that, it's just so encouraging, and it should encourage us. Now, you may remember the story of Jim Elliott. Heard of his story, the, the missionary who went to Ecuador? He was a young missionary at that point. He and four missionary friends wanted to go to the Amazon rainforest to reach an unreached people group, a tribal group. And so they spent months preparing, and then by the time they went there, close to there, they set up camp close to their village, hoping that they'll be able to bring the gospel to them. He was only 28 years old at that time. But instead, what happened? Warriors from the village came and speared the five missionaries to death. He was only 28 years old. But even as a young man, he had that perspective of eternity. He lives for Christ now. And he's got that reward in heaven. And so he said once, he said, He is no fool to lose what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that just a wonderful perspective? Why hold on to stuff we cannot keep anyway? Why not lose ourselves in the hands of Christ and gain everything? Gain life. Gain a relationship with God. And isn't that what, exactly what Jesus said? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. You see, a God-centered life is a cross-shaped life. And that's the only life worth living. And so now the question comes back to us and to you as individuals. Is that you? Can you say, I am living a God-centered life? And is that us as a church, are we reflecting that, living that out, living God-centered lives, centered upon God and not centered upon me, shaped by the cross and not shaped by culture? So how do you think we are going about at doing this? Do you think we see amongst us as we relate, not just on Sundays but in our growth groups, over meals, outside of the Sundays, as we meet, do we in fact see in each other a God-centered living, a cross-shaped life? If you as the church family, if you observe the life of the eldership and the ministry team, Ollie, Michelle, myself, and if you watch us long enough and you do not see a pattern 
of God-centered living, of Christ-shaped sacrificial living amongst you. You don't see at all any sacrifices that are costly for us, for you and for the glory of God. And you don't see how we would lay down our lives for you and for the glory of God. If you don't see that amongst the eldership, amongst the ministry staff, then we have failed you. We have failed you if we haven't done that. Or if this world looks upon us from the outside in and they do not see a pattern of God-centered living, of cross-shaped lives that is so radical that this group of people, they do not live for themselves. So different in the workplace. They live for the glory of God, that they live to bring God honor, that they make costly sacrifices in their career, in their finances, because they are denying themselves and carrying the cross. If the world does not see that in us, then we have failed the world. It is why it has to be the heartbeat of our church. No point being a church where we do not live God-centered, cross-shaped lives, following Jesus in humble discipleship. But of course we remember, we remember the eldership, the staff team, we're not perfect. In fact, no one, no one of us were perfect. But the thing is, we don't need to be. We might drop the cross, and so what do we do? We pick it up again. And we continue to follow the one who went ahead of us, who carried the cross, who didn't drop it, and who died upon the cross for our sake. And so how would you like to be remembered? What's your legacy? What will your legacy be? You see, how we live now and what we impart now shows what we really value. Again, I don't really know whether my son would remember all I said to him, but it at least certainly brought to my mind and my heart, am I really living that for him, to show him, to model to him? I always find great encouragement reading stories of Christians before us who did live that God-centered lives and left a wonderful God-honoring legacy. Just this last week, I came across a letter written by Jonathan Edwards. Do you know the guy, Jonathan Edwards? He was a Puritan, perhaps one of the greatest American theologians, became president of Princeton. He and his wife, Sarah, they had many children, but one of their child, um, Jonathan Jr., when he was only 10 years old, they, as parents, allowed this 10-year-old son to travel with an evangelist to go on a mission trip to reach the native Indians in the mountains. I mean, he was only 10 years old. By them allowing that, what were they showing about their own heart? You know, going to those places, it was dangerous. They could, the son could have been struck down by arrows. But later he wrote a letter to his son dated the 26th of May, 1755. He wrote to his son to reflect his own heart to his own son. And he said, Take heed that you don't forget or neglect him that is God. Always set God before your eyes and live in his fear 
and seek him every day with ordered diligence, for he and he only can make you happy or miserable as he pleases. And your life and health and the eternal salvation of your soul and your all in, in this life and that which is to come depends on his will and pleasure. I am your tender and affectionate father. That was written to a 10-year-old boy. I'm not sure many 10-year-old boys today would understand that. But what did it show about his heart for his son? Live a God-centered life, for there only you can find eternal life. But he did not only want that, he in fact lived it himself, Jonathan Edwards. When he became president of Princeton, he contracted smallpox and shortly after that he died. And so he left his wife Sarah and many of their dependents. His wife Sarah, obviously devastated, wrote to their daughter Esther after the death of the father. Esther, who was 26 years old at that time, she only just lost her husband as well, only six months earlier. And so Sarah, the mother, trying to bring comfort to her daughter because of the death of her husband, but now her father as well. And Sarah wrote these words. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud, oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be your affectionate mother. Isn't that wonderful? You know, what we desire, how we live, what we impart, really reflects what's upon our heart. I learnt a lot from just reading the letters of Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah. And so let me ask again, what is to be the heartbeat of our church? What is to be the heartbeat of each and every one of us? Well, it has to be this, that we live God-centered lives that is shaped by the cross. That's a legacy worth leaving. Let's pray.